everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Chemistry Podcast. I'm your host Lucy, and I am beyond happy to have、um, a new guest for you today.、Um, today, I have with me Dr. Shira Jordan.、Um, she is currently a postdoctoral researcher in environmental chemistry at York University in Toronto, in Canada.、Um, she completed her PhD in chemistry at the University of Toronto in last year, in 2020. And in 2023, she will start as an assistant professor at the Department of Chemistry in the University of Alberta at Edmonton. So, congratulations, Dr. <laughs> Jordan, on this amazing accomplishment.、Um, her research focuses on the fate of organic contaminants in the environment and how transformation reactions impact how us humans and different ecosystems are exposed to these potentially toxic chemicals.、Um, for the past seven years, her major Focus has been PFAS or、um, per and polyfluoroalkyl substances.、Um, Shira is also interested in lots of green chemistry, and she previously attended the ACS Green Chemistry Summer School.、Um, outside of lab, Shira enjoys canoeing and doing fun things with her friends. Thank you so much, Shira, or should I say, Dr. Jordan, for joining me today on the episode, and for all of your、um, for all of our listeners, can I call you Shira? Yes, that's so great. Thank you, Lucy. I'm really excited to be here.、Um, thank you again for coming.、Um, before we get started on the bulk chemistry part of the podcast, is there anything you'd like our guests to know? Hmm. Well,、uh, I think that your guests are, you know, different types of chemists. So I've been thinking about the first thing I want to say, and and I think just quickly for environmental chemistry. We're trying to understand reactions that happen when the Earth is the chemical reaction, like the globe and the atmosphere and the soil and the water are the chemical reactions,、mm-hmm. instead of what we think about with synthetic chemistry, where humans are doing the chemistry. So I think that that's just a really important thing to think about throughout the podcast today.、Yeah. Is even when I'm doing chemistry in the lab, I'm trying to simulate. What would happen, whether it's outside or inside, but what happens just in our day-to-day lives, chemistry-wise, kind of. So you can maybe say like the Earth is your round-bottom flask. Yes,、um, maybe some people know who Nadine Bordeaux-Dedekin is. She's a prof at University of British Columbia, and she is really good at describing it that way. And <laughs> I think it's a really good visual image. Um, yes, exactly. I wonder if we can put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> I feel like maybe I've seen an image. We should look that yeah, up. Yeah, we should probably look that up. And, and if not, we can probably make a T-shirt. Or we could probably... Exactly. Okay, so、um, if our listeners don't know,、um, I Shira actually reached out to me when I kind of asked on Twitter if there were any environmental chemists who wanted to. Come on, this podcast. Since I would say that environmental chemistry is something that's totally outside of my personal research and educational experience.、Um, as an environmental chemist, how would you describe environmental chemistry? And also, something that's like a, that's been in like the chemistry news buzz a lot is like the concept of green chemistry. And how does environmental chemistry relate to green chemistry? And why is that important?、Um, For chemists and for just people in general, chemists or not. Yeah, definitely. So, 
environmental chemistry and green chemistry aren't the same, but they have a lot of overlap and I would say that they're really important to each other. And I, during my PhD at the University of Toronto, I was involved in our green chemistry initiative, which is this student-led initiative. Um, and there's all sorts of different types of chemists, grad students that participate in it. So I have a bit of experience, you know, talking about green chemistry and talking about environmental chemistry and how they overlap or are complementary. Mm -hmm. So when we think about green chemistry, um, you know, there's 12 principles that have been written up. Uh, the big things are like, how can we create a society that has, you know, good quality of life and uses chemi chemistries that um, benefit our day-to-day -day life while not doing damage. So is that damage toxicity, uh, climate change or global warming, or just persistence and then later finding out something is toxic? Another oh. really important part to green chemistry sorry, is is thinking about the people doing the chemistry, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So I don't know, like, do you, what's it like in your department? Are there, are there discussions about, you know, like if you use this solvent, it's not as toxic as a different solvent, for example. So that kind of also fits into green chemistry. So I, when I think of green chemistry, I think of, of what's happening in our chemistry labs. Mm -hmm and then also what is being produced from chemistry. Yeah. So those are kind of the two sides of the coin, I would mm -hmm. say, and they're both very important. Yeah. Uh, and then on the other side of things is environmental chemistry. So environmental chemistry is studying, you know, how chemicals move through the environment, if they react or not, if they build up, um, you know, do they stick to the soil? Do they build up in whales? All these sorts of questions. And to me, the biggest overlap is when we talk about on the green chem green chemistry side, like making products that aren't bad for the environment. <laughs> so how do we know something is uh, a greenhouse gas? The environmental chemists have to study it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> how do we know if something's toxic? Well, that's the toxicologist, but sometimes toxicology and environmental chemistry are kind of, you know, siblings. Mm -hmm. So, so I don't know, a, a big overview picture, you can see how there, there are similarities and there are differences. So environmental chemists are not the ones that are saying, this is making this process more efficient, will will reduce the uh, energy expenditure in our laboratory type thing. <laughs> yeah. But some of those fundamental things that then feed into um, green chemistry are coming from the environmental chemists. Yeah, um, I, th I thought it was really cool because while we were like e exchanging emails, like kind of planning for this episode um, in a um, in the organic chem lab class I'm taking right now, we actually went through like a like a I think a, a two or three week long series on green chemistry, and in our lab reports. Um, we had to write about like, oh, which principles of green chemistry did our experiment follow? And uh, we and we had lots of discussion on that. So I thought it was super cool how like our, the planning for our episode and my class lined up. Yeah, that's perfect. So like, uh, were some of the things about, um, you know, like, are you producing more waste from this reaction yeah, versus a different reaction? Yeah, exactly. Like one of our labs, we um, like one of the steps was solvent free and then they, 
other steps like the solvents were um uh, um, i can't recall off the top of my head because it's been a couple of weeks but um like the solvents were like something super toxic and we had to write about like oh how is this green chemistry yeah and uh, like a big thing to think about that's tricky is you know you might in a whole process in the lab you might improve steps three and five and make them greener but then is step two less green like all these sorts of it's it's not always so simple and so then Mm -hmm. people do life cycle assessments or you know entire process assessments and that is a huge skill Um, Mm -hmm. not my expertise i know a little bit about it but um, the same thing you know if we're talking you could do a life cycle assessment on a product you use Mm -hmm. like your jacket or you could do it on a chemical synthesis right so mm-hmm. starting from it just depends where you start step one from kind yeah. of yeah mm-hmm. um this is kind of tangential not really but um, i'm curious and what got you interested into uh, pursuing environmental chemistry yeah so um i i'm one of those people who if you ask me what my passions are, I don't have like one thing I've been obsessed with my entire life. I think I, I meander and stumble a little bit Well, that's more. totally me too. That's to- Which I think is great. It yeah. means we're interested, right? It's not yeah. a bad thing. Um, so when I was in high school, I really liked science. I'm from Winnipeg, which is right in the middle of Canada, for those who don't know. And my high school was just um, a regular public high school, but it had a really good science program. And when I was in high school, I took an environmental science class. So not environmental chemistry, environmental science, which is more, um, yeah, I mean, it's just not the hardcore chemistry side of things. Mm-hmm. But I also took chemistry and then I enjoyed it. I was like, this is interesting. I like the outdoors. Um, and then when I went to undergrad, I went to an environmental science program. And then I had to take chemistry. Mm-hmm. And in second, sorry, I'm getting distracted trying to remember my life. But oh, don't in, worry about it. In second year analytical chemistry, my analytical chemistry prof said, would you like to apply for funding to work in my lab in the summer? But I only take students who are in chemistry. You're really great. Have you ever thought about switching to chemistry? And then later on, you can apply it to environmental work. Wow, and that's so cool. I don't know, I, I just thought about it and I, because I realized the environmental science program at my undergrad was actually more biologically skewed, like more like ecology mm-hmm. um, than chemistry. So mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, like that does make sense. Like, I think I actually like the chemistry better and I could still do environmental later. So anyways, that summer I worked heated lipidomics. So I was using mass spec to measure uh, different lipids under different um, like virus treatments. And it was, it was more hardcore analytical. And then I ended up going on the next summer to work for an environmental chemistry prof back in my hometown. So, so I guess long story short is, I always liked in the environment and I liked chemistry. Um, and I didn't really know what environmental chemistry was until I got more into analytical chemistry. So I think a fun thing about environmental chemistry is you can come at it from a lot of different angles. So whether that's, you know, coming from a more fundamental uh, analytical chemistry perspective, sometimes um, physical chemists, they'll go in and and do some 
cool spectroscopy work. Um, or people that are more on the, the biological chemistry side might do, you know, toxicity looking at protein targets. So that's a bit more environmental toxicity than chemistry, but the lines are gray sometimes. <laughs> so yeah, I guess um, that's kind of where I ended up. And, and I realized that saying I'm a chemist is really important to me mm-hmm. compared to people who are do environmental, but maybe they're environmental engineers or maybe they're environmental scientists. And all of our work is really complementary. Yeah. But the way environmental chemists look at things, I always say, my PhD supervisor always says, we look at things from a molecular perspective. <laughs> but it's so true. Yeah. He said it all the time. So it kind of became almost like a meme. <laughs> yeah. But um, I do feel like that is a pretty accurate, accurate way to. Um, to describe chemists as like looking at things from a molecular yeah. perspective. I feel like as a um, someone with a biochemistry, chemical biology background, um, as you said, like the lines are also very gray in my field. Yeah, I mean, I like I'm assuming I think it's very similar for, for biological, right? Are you a yeah. biological chemist? Or are you a chemical biologist? Exactly. <laughs> um, and people have pride in whichever one they are and they're not it's not better or worse it's just a different um approach yeah different approach and um it's it's a different way of looking at things that's how i put it yeah and sometimes it's are you are you solving the problem or are you identifying the problem or are Mm -hmm. you you know um and then it's fun to go to conferences where Mm -hmm. everyone kind of comes together and then it's you know kind of progressing the, the, the greater field Yes, exactly. Um, kind of to transition a bit, but I would love to learn more about your research, especially all of the work that you've been doing with um, PFAS, or um, am I saying it correctly? Yeah, that's how I say yeah. it. Some people say PFAS, but I, I, I think most people say PFAS. Okay. Um, yeah, because <laughs> um, again, like as I was preparing for this episode, I was doing some like research like looking just googling things and it seems to be like a pretty hot topic i would say yes. currently <laughs> um firstly like what was your research about like like what uh, what are you willing to or like want our listeners to know yeah so um for those who don't know PFAS, per and polyfluoroalkyl substances are a class of chemicals that um, they're grouped together because they have multiple carbon atoms that have fluorines on them, like a perfluoroalkyl chain. Mm-hmm. Um, but but really, they all kind of come from the same groups of applications, which is as fluorosurfactants, so high-performance surfactants, mm-hmm. or as some surface coatings like for oil resistance or stain resistance. You know, mm-hmm. you think of Scotchgard or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but but from the uh, environmental concern perspective they there's a lot of different chemicals in this class of thousands but they're either really persistent so they don't break down mm-hmm. or some of them break down to the ones that then don't break down oh, no, <laughs> and so. mm-hmm. there's a lot of known toxicity related mm-hmm. so uh, we have these chemicals that as a group most of them don't break down and the ones that we have toxicity information about are concerning and there's multiple different endpoints so it's not just one mechanism of toxicity Mm -hmm. Um, and then the ones we don't have toxicity information for 
are structurally similar, so it's thought that they most likely have similar causes. So I'm not a toxicologist, but I do mm-hmm. go to, you know, the conferences that talk about these things. Uh, so that's, that's this class of compounds. Mm-hmm. And the reason, besides the bad things about the compounds themselves, it's also concerning because of how, how they're kind of found everywhere in the environment. So if I measured your blood, I would find these chemicals. If I measured your lake that you live closest to or whatever, I Mm -hmm. would find that. So they're they're kind of everywhere. Um, And so there's been a lot of push in, in even the most recent years to get more data of measurements, like are people's wells contaminated? Um, there are certain really bad areas that have to do with local industries or if there was an, an Air Force base. So one really big usage is, um, they're called aqueous film forming foams, which is a mouthful. But if you, you know when they have to put out like a plane that's on fire? Yeah. You can't just use a normal, um, you can't just use what you would like use on someone's hands because there's fuel so they have to use the special foam and that's a clear entrance into the environment now if a plane is on fire we need to do whatever we need to do to put it out right yeah but but for training purposes they were doing it all the time so if if you would be using it once every five years versus you know I don't know, however often they were training all the new people, you can imagine that spraying that is a clear entry route into the environment. Yeah. So sorry, I think I've gotten a roundabout way. Let me let me circle back to some key points. Oh this yeah, class no, of chemical- about it. <laughs> <laughs> this class of chemicals is generally persistent. Some of them are toxic and they're everywhere, including some really hot spots, we could say, mm-hmm. across the world. Um, And so what my research for my PhD, and then some stuff I'm working on now as well, has been looking at how um, some of the ones that do react, how they break down and which other PFAS they form. So, yeah, so I would, I have done experiments in in kind of like different, we can call them test systems. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. one of them was, in this kind of like gas chamber where we study what would happen to the chemical if it was oxidized in the atmosphere. So we live in an oxidizing atmosphere, right? We have mm-hmm. oxygen. Yep. <laughs> so that a major reaction is oxidation mm-hmm. with uh, different atmospheric radicals. And so how does this chemical react with oxidants in the atmosphere? Another one was using sludge from a wastewater treatment plant to see how this chemical would degrade in a wastewater treatment plant. And another one was actually a rat metabolism study. So how do rats break down these chemicals or not? Um, And one thing that was cool during my PhD is that I got to work with um, a company that was studying, they made a new chemical that they were hoping wouldn't be as persistent as older ones. Mm -hmm. So you can see how this is kind of green chemistry, right? This company makes a new chemical that they're hoping can replace the ones that have been banned or phased out. And they're like, does it actually degrade? And then I did the experiment to find out if it degrades faster than me ones or if it degrades into things that um, are not as concerning. Mm-hmm. So um, my research always focuses on what happens to the chemical. 
I find it just so fascinating how like I feel like a lot of people when they um especially the people who might not have a chemistry background and but are still very environmentally conscious they are saying like oh like these um oh such and such compounds or such and such compounds are bad um when they're released into the environment but i but um please correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like a lot of public perception is oh these compounds are like inherently bad but they don't really think about that while they're floating around in the air in the atmosphere they can react to form even more toxic compounds is that correct yeah i think that's a really important thing to think about is is not just the chemicals that we use but what they form afterwards so yeah. maybe have you heard of Rachel Carson yes so the mm-hmm. the ddt and dde is a really good example mm-hmm. um where it wasn't actually the pesticide that was being sprayed that was that bad it was its its transformation product that was mm-hmm. worse so so yeah we can think about are the transformation products firstly first up we need to do is identify them right yeah <laughs> we need to find out what these things are mm-hmm. and then you know maybe someone has to do a whole toxicology like suite of studies to find out if they're bad yeah so with all and okay what about this so if you think about pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. they are super high purity right yeah because they're not going to give us something that's not pure that's oh, just no. not safe no yeah but something that you're going to spray on your couch. Do you think it's pure? <laughs> I'm going way, to say no. <laughs> yeah, so the way that, you know, these types of chemicals that are used for um you know, our our daily lives, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. um household products, industrial chemicals, the threshold is kind of like does it do the function we want it to do in terms mm-hmm. of any sort of purity test. So, if it's a surfactant does it lower the tension the way we want it to mm-hmm. as long as it passes that test it, it, it's fine yeah um so the, the purity is just never as good so we also need to think about residuals from the synthesis or mm-hmm. um, byproducts and again it depends it depends the product like some of them are a lot purer than others i'm just kind of speaking in general terms and the way we regulate chemicals that are used you know in these sorts of applications it's just it's just not very strict and and yeah. how do we go back to all the chemicals that have already been approved right it's just thousands and thousands of chemicals so mm-hmm. it's really only a handful of chemicals that are known to cause the majority of toxicity mm-hmm. but but how do you like, finding which ones is um, is a huge challenge that people are working on yeah. so mm-hmm. um kind of overwhelming when you think about it from that <laughs> the people are trying to there's a big push for changing how regulations happen you know mm-hmm. to get more data before they're approved kind of oh, like um like a preventive what's the word like a precautionary approach mm-hmm. versus a a retroactive try to find the issue but environmental chemists always joke like We always have research to do. <laughs> it's not like it's a problem. Yeah. Um, but it's, there's always something to study. Mhm. So so yeah, um in terms of like the 
kind of, yeah, linking. I just want to go back to linking the types of research I do to any sort of green chemistry. So Mm -hmm. if we talk about the green chemistry in terms of making new chemicals or products that we use in our day-to-day lives that aren't persistent, um, if we can do some sort of experiments in the lab that look at the reactions that we would see in the environment and some sort of structure relationship to reactivity, that's like a good uh, complementary approach there. Um, I was really, um, I was, I, um, I was pretty shocked when you said that just how, a, just how PFAS are like everywhere, like in, in your blood, in like a random lake you find. Um, can you, um, do you have an idea of like how this became such a problem? Like how did it get everywhere? Yeah, so uh, there's a few important things to think about when we think about the, the global contamination. So mm-hmm. so one is just usage. Um, using it a lot, these chemicals, or at least some of them, have been used since the 1950s. Um, and, and some of them, uh, like one of the really common ones is PFOA, PFOA, or perfluorooctanoic acid. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing about that is, even though it has eight carbons, seven of whom are, seven of which are fully fluorinated, it also has a carboxylic acid. So it is a little more mobile mm-hmm. and has better water solubility than if it was an acid. So that's one way that they can move. Um, another thing is that there are volatile chemicals that get oxidized to make these acids. And if they're volatile, it's easier for them to move throughout the atmosphere, Uh, uh, in the gas phase or on little aerosol particles. uh Um, So that's, there's been some really interesting research from a few people, but mainly my postdoc supervisor, Cora Young, looking at atmospheric deposition of these chemicals in the Arctic. So looking at ice cores that only get fed, they don't get any ocean inputs. Mm -hmm. So it has to be from the atmosphere. Mm. So that's that's kind of the other kind. Um, In environmental chemistry, you can do lab experiments to simulate the environment, or you can look at trends in the environment to understand what's happening. That's so cool. Usually the complementary approaches are really how we get a good understanding. Mm -hmm. Another thing is bioaccumulation. So, these chemicals actually behave differently than most what we call persistent organic pollutants. So in um, they do bioaccumulate, but instead of bioaccumulating in like lipids and fat, they mostly bioaccumulate in protein-rich parts of our body or animals' bodies. Oh, so wow. like livers and kidneys. Um, yeah, so... Sounds concerning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, if um, like there's also biomagnification, right? So yes. biomagnification is when when you go up the food chain, the concentrations are increasing. So things like whales have high levels because they're top apex predators. Um, for humans, like a lot of the PFAS exposure we get is from our food. It's also from our water, and it's also from you know just like living in our indoor environments. That needs mm-hmm. to be studied more still, though. But um, 
depending on where you live, it could be more water or more food. But I can give you an example about how it can get into your food a few different ways. So, okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> one <laughs> is if you're, you know, let's say you eat fish. Mm-hmm. And the fish, there's some sort of level of these chemicals in the lake or the ocean. And then, you know, the little things <laughs> are, get the PFAS in them and it biomagnifies and then you eat the fish, right? Yeah. So I've, I've measured PFAS in just fish bought from the grocery store before. Uh, not like the highest levels, but measurable levels. Wow. Um, and then for things like plants, one thing that um, lots of areas do is they use fertilizer from the wastewater treatment plants. So mm-hmm. um, like the last bits of sludge <laughs> that, that are not, they're not uh, dangerous in terms of anything like E. coli at this point, like the biological things are fine. Mm-hmm. Um, then farmers can buy that to use as fertilizer. So if you think about if our houses and our daily lives have all these PFAS and then it goes down the drain or the toilet or whatever, ends up at our wastewater treatment plants and now that's being used for our crops, that's a way that it can also get into the food. Oh, there. okay, yeah. So it's, I, there's just lots of different ways um, but some of the part, some of the reasons that these chemicals have kind of moved so far from the point sources, you know, like factories and stuff, to the rest of the world, have to do with their chemical properties and um, some of the reactions that can occur um, can help transport them as well. Mm-hmm. As I was researching for this episode, um, I found out that even though there has been a lot of buzz about PFAS. Um, a lot of the buzz is like in news sites that are like chemistry news or like environmental science news and or like some local maybe like local small news sites but it hasn't really been like big for like let's say climate to like compare to like climate change or like back then with like the whole um with whole greenhouse gases and stuff why do you think that is do you think it's just still something where a lot of research is still being done and has to be done or um do you believe that there is a lack of maybe like public knowledge of this of 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 the can you say abundance of PFAS in the um, environment Mm -hmm. yeah so actually I think in the past year up to three years even there's been a lot more mainstream news so I mean it, those might be the first things that come up for you, but there's been some really uh, big advocacy from different environmental groups. And there's been um, articles, like huge features in, in different really mainstream articles. And one of the reasons is that, you know, American focused, so I don't remember every detail, but the EPA has changed some of their guidelines mm-hmm. on, so the environmental, the US Environmental Protection Agency has mm-hmm. changed some of the thresholds. and made them lower mm-hmm. um there was also a movie called oh my gosh i'm blanking oh no so so there's a documentary called the devil we know about oh. pfas and it's mm-hmm. on netflix and it's really good Ooh, okay. but there there was a movie with mark ruffalo oh dark waters sorry i could not remember what it's called so there was a, this is a really interesting story. I mean, it's sad, but it's interesting. In Parkersburg, West Virginia, there was a 
a, a chemistry a chemical plant and the local the local community was really impacted like um cows died and like, multiple children with birth defects and they found that dupont the chemical company had this these internal documents that said like the you know the toxicity levels are this much but then they told their their employees that it wasn't as toxic so oh, yeah. if anyone wants to learn more there's yeah the movie is called dark waters uh the documentary is called the devil we know and then um there's a book about the law that the lawyer wrote uh what is it called i have it it's called exposure by robert billot um so so it's kind of a sad story but if you it's true and if you want to know about some of the sad sides of the chemical industry it's definitely worth a read or a watch however you prefer i mean the movie's hollywood so the documentary <laughs> or, you know <laughs> depends what you want to learn yeah. but and then there was john oliver just talked about it on his show oh really and, oh, i'm pretty behind on john oliver's <laughs> okay i i only saw because people tweeted the clip i don't actually watch but so i guess what i'm saying is i think there's been a lot of of mainstream um so i've been studying pfas for seven years i think now and when i started no one knew what that meant <laughs> and now a lot of people who i meet actually know what that is um That's so cool which is yeah like i did not expect that um so yeah i do think that there's a lot of mainstream it depends on where like, you look right it depends like if you're someone that reads a newspaper every day mm -hmm. you know like kind of the older generation <laughs> they they might see it um mm -hmm. there is you mentioned local news i think that that's really a big thing mm -hmm. i've been to yeah. different um some of these like more niche conferences and they'll have people come from highly impacted communities and you know trying to get like they just they want data to know how bad their drinking water is they want to yeah. know how high their blood levels are mm -hmm. all these sorts of things um and most of the time the pollution can be pretty easily pointed back to either a company or like um usually like it, like the department of defense or the army or something mm -hmm. because that's where they were using it but mm -hmm. it's it's hard because if you know it's not like boiling the water is going to do anything yeah. because they're persistent chemicals <laughs> but um yeah. i know there's been some advice like sorry. so it it's really sad to hear yeah. about the communities that have been really impacted um hearing like this woman talked about the levels in her young son um and like what can she do at this point right yeah so i think that um it's important to think about those things because sometimes we're just in the lab right yeah. doing our research um like you know like something analogous would be someone who does cancer research and then actually goes and talks to people who have cancer like you know mm -hmm. like it's easy to just be like oh this is my lab work but like what what is the big picture that we're working towards um mm -hmm. whether that's better regulations or you know we're talking about different approaches so some of the engineers that are trying to 
do um, removal approaches for these yeah. PFAS. Mm-hmm. That, um, so yeah, I do think it's it's important to think about the people, and it's usually not always, but usually impacts people of lower socioeconomic yeah. status or you know environmental mm-hmm. racism, the communities. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's important to think about these mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for bringing that last part up because I feel like it really transitions into like my next and like final, we can say final question is that what can we do as chemists, as people in general to kind of alleviate, like, can you say like the chemical stress that our daily activities put on the earth? Yeah. Like just in, in your personal day-to-day life or in your lab both maybe like i think maybe since since our audience is i would say a lot of chemists maybe we can focus on the lab but also like in the um, day-to-day personal day-to-day life like how can we be aware of what we're using and uh, what that can do to the environment because i feel like especially now in this day and age a lot of the things we kind of just use and we don't really think about any environmental impact (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so I, we were talking about this at our group meeting this past week. Like, what what do we do differently in our in my research group that I'm a part of? Uh, because we know it as environmental chemists. So I'll start with that part first, and then I'll come back to the lab. Um, I mean, you know, not just living an excessive life is an easy one. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can take public transit, take public transit. Um, something that is a really easy thing to do is if you're cooking on the stovetop and you have a fan above, turn the fan on because that's going to improve your indoor air quality. That's more your personal mm-hmm. um, exposure. But yeah, turning on a fan is a really easy one, like the vents above your your mm-hmm. stove if you oh, have yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's it called? Range? <laughs> There's a word. <laughs> Depends if you have a microwave above or not. Yeah. Um, or and also like candles too can, can impact your indoor air quality. So that um, in terms of PFAS, I I'm trying to think of things for myself the way I've been thinking about it is if I'm buying a new item, um, like I just bought a new winter winter jacket. And it said mm-hmm. that it was free of fluoropolymers. And I was like, that's awesome. Yay. I like this jacket and it says <laughs> that. We don't need, I don't need it. Like it says it's non-fluorinated, but water resistant. Perfect. Mm-hmm. So there is technology that can do that. But I don't think it's worth it to throw something out just because it has fluoropolymers in it because it's already. Made. So yeah. those are kind of things to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, old appliances replacing them if you can afford it another thing to remember is that like a lot of these things cost money so you can't always you know live the greenest life yeah Uh, but Mm -hmm. but there are some things that are easier like opening a window you know more often and and that sort of thing and and i will say like you know i'm someone who is in this field and i i was reading like body wash bottles when i was buying a new like I was, what was it, lotion or something? Mm-hmm. And I was trying to say what I wanted to buy based on what chemicals were listed in the ingredients. And I just got frustrated because we don't always know enough to actually know which is better. So yeah. I think that, that that's tough too. So, so do what we can without being too hard on ourselves. Um, in the lab, uh, but there are some websites that I, 
forget what they're called, but can help you decide on purchases if you're making bigger purchases. Mm-hmm. Um, the Green Science Policy Institute out of at Berkeley is really great if people want to look into that. Oh, we um, can definitely link those in the description. Yeah, sure. And then, um, so for the lab, again, I am not a synthetic chemist, and I think usually the instructions are mostly directed at synthetic chemists, but I can mm-hmm. tell you some things that I know. So mm-hmm. some um, some glove manufacturers have glove recycling programs. If anyone listening you know, is not familiar with these, you can put pressure onto your department to ask about this. I'm pretty sure it's Kimberly Clark that does. So if you have really dirty gloves, those don't go in the recycling. Um, But you know, if you use gloves because you're protecting your sample, not protecting yourself more, those can be recycled. Um, That's a good program. Um, There's also acetone recyclers and those so, you know, um, if you're using large volumes of acetone to wash, this is again at the department level, but something that students can put pressure on their department for. Um, during my PhD at University of Toronto, the student uh, green chemistry initiative uh, worked with the department to get an acetone recycler. Um, and it does kind of pay for itself at some point. So what it's, you know, like a series of distillations and such and so your wash acetone is now ready to be wash acetone again. But That's so cool. The, yeah, so there's there's these sorts of things. And um, there's also like the solvent swap chart. Uh, I'd have to check which. There's a few big companies that have put out like, if you usually use this solvent for something, it's greener if you use this other solvent. And this mm-hmm. is a, suit- a suitable replacement. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing. Um, you know, just like electrical things, if you can think about reducing the electricity, uh, depending on the type of fume hood you have. I mean, closing your fume hood sash is important for safety, but depending on the type of fume hood, actually closing it to the like optimal level can really decrease the energy requirements as well. So. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like a, a, a daily, you know, thing people can do. And when I started grad school, I remember they joked that each fume hood, we later got our fume hoods replaced, but they said each fume hood is like the electricity of a house. So this building is like a city or something. Wait, wait. I, I did not know that. <laughs> it's not a, it's, I think it's an, it's a dramatic way to say it. I don't think it's actually true, mm-hmm. but depending on how old your fume hoods are and the fans pulling them they really can use a lot of energy so if you want to cut down on the energy these are things um, the building manager in department will probably know about Um, so again it really depends the department but if if anyone's thinking about making some sort of green chemistry initiative Mm -hmm. there are other initiatives that you can reach out to for um, advice so i'll plug the University of Toronto Green Chemistry Initiative because mm-hmm. that's what I was a part of. And there's, um, on their website, it shows different different things that they've done and worked with the department to do in addition to the, the chemistry outreach and, and teaching. But but there are things that, I mean, maybe, maybe, you know, people are in brand new buildings and everything's energy efficient anyways, but sometimes it's worth asking. Okay. Um, I actually did not know that the glove recycling thing existed. 
And I so think, I think yeah, I think it's newer. But mm-hmm. if you think about how many gloves you use that actually get really dirty, oh gosh, what do you, yeah. What do you think? Ten percent, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, or from I mean, again, people do different types of work in the lab, but. Mm-hmm. If you spill, you take off your gloves. Gloves. But usually you don't spill. Yeah, no, looking looking at like what I do, I go through a lot of unnecessary gloves. And yeah, because I mean, if you're doing RNA work, I'm sure you're just trying to never contaminate your yeah. sample. Right? Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, since for me, like contamination is such an issue. I'm like, oh, I think I might have contaminated my gloves. Gotta take them off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. Unfortunately, we are almost out of time. Um, is there any last um, words that you'd like to share with our wonderful listeners? Um, thank you again so much for everything you shared. It was very insightful and very interesting for me to hear um, um, from a chemist in the field so different from mine. Thanks, Lucy. Um, I think I talked a lot. So, <laughs> uh, this is my first podcast. I don't know if I mentioned that. Oh, before. wow. Well, I'm so happy to be your first podcast. Um, I, I think just like, you know, environmental chemistry is a growing field. It's, I mean, I'm biased, but I think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it really has, um, you know, it has so many avenues for collaboration. So, yeah. If you're, if you don't ever want to be an environmental chemist, I think you can, you know, always kind of keep those people in the back of your mind. And mm-hmm. if you're someone who's, who's thinking about environmental chemistry, like if you're an undergrad and you're, you're debating what you want to do for grad school, I would say anyone with like a strong analytical chemistry background, or if, you know, depending the type of research, maybe you have a strong organic background, that would be really beneficial if you're studying organic so mm-hmm. um, if someone thinks that they want to get into environmental chemistry, there's probably a type of environmental chemistry that suits the skills that they already have. Mm-hmm. Or of course you can learn new ones. But I think that it's the type of field that it's okay to get into a little bit later. Of mm-hmm. course, there'll yeah. be a learning curve, but it's it's okay if you've never worked in an environmental chemistry lab in undergrad and then you want to go to grad school is what I think. Um, once again, thank you so much, Shira, for coming onto the podcast. Um, this is a great conversation and great advice, great insight into really like to be mindful on like what we're really putting into the environment, both as chemists and as day-to-day human beings. Yeah, um, this but, has been great. Thank you so much. Um, but before we leave, I do have to ask you the classic question for my podcast that I ask every guest I have. Um, what is your favorite type of tea? Uh, I mean, I really just like a good Earl Grey. And I know that that's maybe boring. No, it's not. Oh, Earl oh. Grey is good. And if I'm in the right mood, I might add milk. But usually not. But sometimes. Are you just a, like a black tea person or do you add sugar? or? No sugar. No, no. sugar, just black tea. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we love but I do like it. I do like most tea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a question I ask all my listeners since we are the chemistry podcast. Yes, very much makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, once again, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Um, all of our listeners, I will link 
the different resources we talked about during this podcast, including the next, including the Netflix documentary. If you're interested, in the episode description, um, I will also link um, Shira's um, Twitter um, if you want to maybe chat with her or um, see what she's up to through um, on Twitter, and that will also be in the episode description. Um, down um, in the description, you will also find a link to the podcast Kofi page. Which, since we are an unsponsored podcast, um, we really appreciate your donations. And once again, Shira, congratulations on the new position. Um, I should call you Professor Jordan, maybe. Um, soon, th- thank you. Soon, yes. In one year, you said. Yeah. Yeah, I'm ex- so excited to see what you do um, in your new position next year, and I will be following up on in the Twitter sphere, Twitterverse, whatever. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. um, And thank you all for listening. Um, I hope you have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye. Bye.